So just being aware of the agricultural use of yokes and then how in the Bible, metaphorically, the yoke is really tied to the work that people do. It's tied to the one who holds the reins and causes people to do a certain type of work. And oftentimes that is in the form of slavery. Welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Scripture podcast. This is Greg Hall, and today we're continuing our trip down the road of rest. I recently came out with my first book, Rethinking Rest, and that's just caused me to go a little deeper into the topic here on the podcast episodes. And today, we are going to be trying to unscramble Christ's easy yoke. And it's, it's not an overly easy yoke. That would be too runny. <laughs> but it's an easy yoke. And as much as I would love to continue playing on the difference between yoke and yoke, the Y-O-K-E that Jesus offers has nothing to do with the Y-O-L-K of an egg. It's a completely different thing. But we are still going to try and unscramble Christ's yoke because I believe what Jesus was talking about has been mixed up and misunderstood by many believers. In the last episode, we began taking a look at biblical rest and what remains of that biblical rest. And we saw that Jesus attached a yoke, which is an instrument of work, to his offer of rest. So, In at least Jesus' mind, those two things are somehow closely related. Here, to get us started, I'll just go back to Matthew 11, 28 through 30, read it out of the NASB. It says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And the problem that I raised in the last episode that we're going to try and unpack a little bit more today is that Jesus' statement is spoken into a context where the use of a yoke, both literally and metaphorically, had a certain context. And we don't necessarily have that context in our modern day at all. So, Let's just start at the beginning. A yoke. It's that farming implement that binds two animals together for the purposes of work. And to be really effective, it has to be attached to a set of reins. Uh, The reins allow the farmer, or whoever is holding them, to guide the animals. And how does that work? Well, it controls their direction, the way that they're heading, and it dictates somewhat how they do their work whether that be pulling a cart or a plow. It's the yoke that makes the animals that are attached to the yoke more productive. So, just for example, a pair of oxen not attached to a yoke would probably choose to do different things than if they were attached to a yoke. That just makes sense. I've never seen two oxen just by themselves out in a field pulling a plow and getting work done. So it's that yoke, and specifically the one who holds the reins of the yoke, that allows productivity to become more fruitful. 
And we've quickly gotten to the very end of my knowledge of yolks, and I'm assuming that's about the end of yours as well. So for the remainder of this episode, I'm going to be relying very heavily on an article written by J.K. Garrett for the Lexham Bible Dictionary. He compiled a bunch of information about yolks, and I'm just going to be sharing most of that with you. And he begins the entry on yolks with just this. He says, a yoke is an instrument made from bent wood that was placed around the necks of animals. He also says it's a mark of slavery, often used for animals, but more prominently used in biblical literature for humans. So used metaphorically, this refers to the responsibilities of slaves. So just already we've gotten way past the literal use of a piece of wood on a farm, and he's brought out this idea that we will go into in a little more depth how yokes and humans are actually combined within the biblical text. But before we go down that road, just a little historical development that Garrett gives. He says the two types of yokes that served as a symbol for the biblical writers were the ox yoke and the horse yoke both of which had a unique development within ancient times. He says ancient readers of the Bible would have been somewhat familiar with these terms. So the ox yoke was invented in approximately the 4th millennium BC, and its primary purpose was to lessen a human's burdens and increase productivity in the agricultural work. And that was by harnessing a plow to an ox. And He mentions that there are pictographs from 3300 BC, which display yokes being used for agricultural purposes. So the history of yokes goes way back. In the fourth millennium, royal seals and pictographs provide evidence of horses yoked to chariots and used for military purposes. By 1200 BC, the chariot-yoked horse was responsible for the rise of the Assyrian Empire. And by the 7th century BC, the term yoke became synonymous with the power of the Assyrian king, Sennacherib. And relying on the symbolic power of the horse yoke, other kings began yoking humans in a show of power and prominence over a newly subjugated people. Yoked humans, or harnessed humans, pulled war chariots in a royal display of humiliation of subjects. Hammurabi yoked prisoners of war together to be transported as slaves. And even in Israel's history, human slaves were yoked and made to build roads and carry heavy loads of stones on their shoulders. So given that history from the worldly perspective, Garrett, in his article, brings that perspective into the biblical realm. And he said the physical yoke used in agriculture and slavery and the military became a symbol relating to burden in biblical text. And that can bring out both positive and negative aspects of that symbol. So, for instance, a harsh yoke could refer to an oppressive burden of slavery, while an easy yoke could refer to one's burdens being lightened.
So now we're just going to spend some time in the Old Testament and take a look at some of these examples of how this term yoke is used, either literally or metaphorically. And before we get into the examples, let's just talk about the vocabulary itself. So in the Old Testament, mostly written in Hebrew, two different words are used for yoke. One of those words, not used as much, is just often translated into English as bar, like a just a straight bar. The other word in the Hebrew is often translated as yoke, so it's a little easier to see, but not always, especially as we get into the New Testament and start talking about the Greek equivalents. We often translate away from the yoke term because it's not as familiar to us, so we'll take a look at that as well. It's the Hebrew word that's often translated yoke that's much more common, and it's used independently of the other one, the bar word. We see that 38 times where this yoke word is used. It's this type of yoke that was used to hold prisoners in place, similar to maybe shackles in later times. And sometimes, just two times, those two words are actually used together, the bar and the yoke out of the Hebrew text. And that's in Leviticus 26.13, and then again in Ezekiel 34.27. Let's just read Leviticus 26.13 real quick. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves. And I broke the bars, there's that first word, of your yoke, there's the second word, and made you walk erect. So not very often where the two words are used together. Usually it's just the yoke and that's 38 times. But Garrett suggests in his article that the significance of these two words is practically the same. The yoke typically represented enslavement of people or persons. The enslavement could come in various forms. The first reference that we see is in Genesis 27:40, and that's where the enslavement could come from rival families. And it's this passage where Isaac is talking to Esau, his son, about his other son, Jacob. And Isaac says to Esau, Behold, away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live, and your brother you shall serve. But it shall come about, when you become restless, that you will break his yoke from your neck. And it's because of this that the text says Esau bore a grudge against Jacob and sought to kill him. So it's yokes that uh, become this symbol of slavery, but when a yoke is broken, it becomes the symbol for freedom of the enslaved. We see that in Jeremiah 5.5, Ezekiel 30, verse 18, and again in chapter 34, verse 27. A yoke in the Old Testament can also refer to carrying a metaphorical burden. So like divine judgment could be referred to as a yoke as the natural consequences of sin. We see that in Deuteronomy 28, 48. It could also be this metaphorical burden that's spoken of when the actual yoke is being used as well. And we're going to go into a little bit more detail on this one. This is Jeremiah chapter 27, beginning in verse 1. It says, In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, Jeremiah is a prophet to the southern king of Judah, This word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord to me, Make for yourself bonds 
and yokes and put them on your neck. So Jeremiah the prophet was told to bind himself and put literal yokes on his neck before he communicated the message that he was given by God to the nations about serving the king of Babylon. This is when the southern kingdom of Judah is taken into captivity in Babylon. And God tells Jeremiah, I am going to be sending these people into that position of slavery. And to illustrate it, you need to get a literal yoke and put it on your neck and carry it around. And what's the message that Jeremiah gives to the people with a literal yoke on his neck? He says, it will be that the nation or the kingdom which will not serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and which will not put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, God will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence. So, as a result of not following God's commands, not just the nation of Israel, but several other nations got this message as well, that they as a nation were to bring their neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon. That's what God was commanding. And that's what Jeremiah told Zedekiah, king of Judah, bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon. Interestingly, in the next chapter, we have another prophet of God showing up, and it says, in the same year, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year and the fifth month, Hananiah, the prophet, who is from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts. So here's another prophet showing up around the same time that Jeremiah is giving his prophecy about what God wants you to do is put your necks under the king of Babylon's yoke. Hananiah shows up and announces to everybody that the God of Israel has told him, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. And within two years, I'm going to bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. And Hananiah says, I am also going to bring back to this place all the exiles of Judah who went to Babylon, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. And to emphasize his point, Hananiah took the yoke from the neck of Jeremiah, the literal one that he was wearing and carrying around for evidently about a year here. He took that yoke and he broke it. So this visual that Jeremiah has been using, Hananiah comes in and literally breaks it. Very dramatic scene. The only problem is this Hananiah was a false prophet. This was not a message that God had given Jeremiah, and it was not a message that God had given Hananiah. Verse 12 says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Go speak to Hananiah and tell him, This is what the Lord says. You have broken the yokes of wood, but you have made instead of them yokes of iron. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron on the necks of these nations, that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they will serve him. And I have also given him the beasts of the field. And then 
If that wasn't dramatic enough, Jeremiah the prophet said to Hananiah, Listen now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, what's, <laughs> what's the outcome of this? The Lord says, Behold, I'm about to remove you from the face of the earth. This year you're going to die because you have counseled rebellion against the Lord. And so the text says that Hananiah the prophet died in the same year, in the seventh month. And the reason I'm spending so much time on this is because of something that may be totally obvious, but I'm going to point it out anyway. Jeremiah 27 and 28, where we've just been, leads into Jeremiah 29. And most people don't have a clue about Jeremiah's story at all. But if they know anything, they know a verse out of chapter 29 of Jeremiah. And that is, say it with me, Jeremiah 29, 11. So before we go on and talk more about yokes, in this example where Jeremiah the prophet is given a yoke literally to wear as he talks about a yoke of slavery and captivity in Babylon, and then Hananiah tries to dissuade people to believe something different, and that yoke of wood becomes a yoke of iron, metaphorically, like more powerful, right? That leads into Jeremiah 29, 11. And it's further instruction that I find very interesting that the prophet Jeremiah is given to tell the people. He basically says, you're going to have to get used to this idea. In fact, verse 5, you should go and build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce and take wives and become fathers of sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters, and multiply there, and do not decrease. In other words, people going into captivity would likely be looking forward to a time when they weren't in captivity, and they may choose not to get married or not to have kids because they didn't want to bring them into a certain condition. They wanted to wait maybe until they were free. Jeremiah's message for this group of people being exiled out of the southern kingdom of Judah into Babylon is it's time to get settled in. You're going to build lives there. Not just you, your kids. Encourage them to build lives there. In fact, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, verse 7 says, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, the city where they're being sent. Pray for that city. For in the city's welfare, you will also have welfare. And how long is this going to be? God gives Jeremiah that answer as well. Verse 10, For the Lord says, When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word for you to bring you back to this place. That's Jeremiah 29.10. And that leads directly into Jeremiah 29.11 which says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And it's this passage that's a favorite of people today in our culture, in our context, to pull out of the Old Testament and claim as their life verse. But we've just taken a look at the context, and what is this actually saying? 
God says, for I know the plans I have for you, you people that are going into slavery. What are the Lord's plans again for these people? The plans are that you'll be in slavery, not just you, but your kids as well. So get used to it and pray for your captors, because as Babylon goes, your welfare is tied to them directly. Those are the plans that the Lord has for these people. But they're not the only plans. After 70 years, I'll bring you out. It's more of a collective idea of the plans God has for groups of people. And so if you're pulling Jeremiah 29, 11 out of this context, and you're trying to apply it to your own personal situation, just realize what you're doing. You're claiming a verse where God is telling people that they're going to be in slavery for the rest of their lives and get used to it. Their future and hope literally is slavery. The bigger future and hope is what God is talking about, what their grandchildren will experience, is a bringing back to the land and freedom. Well, moving on from that, a couple other things from the Old Testament uh, regarding yokes before we move on to New Testament ideas. I want to briefly just mention 1 Kings chapter 12. And this is a time in history where King David's son Solomon has reigned for a long period of time, and he dies and passes his kingdom off to his son Rehoboam. And in 1 Kings 12, the story of that progression is described using an idea of a yoke. Verse 4, your father, meaning Solomon, made our yoke hard. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. The people are talking to Rehoboam and saying this. And Rehoboam says, get out of here for three days. I'm going to think about this and listen to different groups of people. And he gets two sets of suggestions. One is to lighten the load, and one is to make it even a heavier yoke. And Rehoboam decides to go with his young crew and their advice and make it a heavier yoke. And he says, whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. And it's then when Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam and got the word And this began the division of the nation of Israel into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. It was because of a yoke and the decision to go with a harsher yoke. So just being aware of the agricultural use of yokes and then how in the Bible, metaphorically, the yoke is really tied to the work that people do. It's tied to the one who holds the reins and causes people to do a certain type of work, and oftentimes that is in the form of slavery. That's the biblical picture of a yoke in the Old Testament. And this is also brought into the idea of the serving in the temple. Let me just remind you, Numbers 19.2, the Lord says, Speak to the sons of Israel that they may bring you an unblemished red heifer in which there is no defect. We're used to that, you know, needs to be a perfect animal. And it says, on which a yoke has never been placed. So for an animal, that means they have never been put to servitude. But symbolically, what does that mean? For a sacrificial animal to be brought that's perfect 
and has never been brought under the slavery of a harsh owner. It's that type of animal that's acceptable as a sacrifice. And it's not just the animals. This is one that you may not have picked up on, and I think it's a nice way to close out our summary of the Old Testament ideas of yokes. I'm in First Chronicles 15, 15. It says, The sons of the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles therein, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Interestingly, the word for poles, the poles that the Ark of the Covenant were carried on, is that Hebrew word bar that is a yoke. So in an Old Testament context, the picture doesn't just stay in the farmyard. It gets carried into the war scenarios and the slavery scenarios, and then it's brought into the temple scenario And it ultimately plays out in this picture of the priesthood who's carrying the very words of God within the ark, the symbol of his presence. And they are carrying that with a yoke that they've chosen to place on their shoulders. Let's get into the New Testament for just a minute. And when we flip over from old to new, remember that we are changing languages as well. So we're now in the Greek language, and we've got new words for yoke. Um, Interestingly, in the New Testament, there's also a couple different words for yoke that have slightly different connotations. One of them, just used a few times, refers to the yoke uh, according to working animals. The other one is more often used of humans, the work that humans do. This is the one that's used in Matthew 11, 29, and 30. But it's not just used for Jesus's yoke. It also is used in Acts 15, 10, where the yoke of the old covenant is described as placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Garrett also brings out in his article, some New Testament letters seem to rely on the Old Testament understanding of yoke as an instrument of slavery. We see that in Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And then again in 1 Timothy 6.1, All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. So this idea from the Old Testament of a yoke being used as a type of slavery, it's still part of the culture when we get into the New Testament idea. Inanimate objects could be yoked together to assess burdens, as like in a pair of scales. We see that in Revelation 6-5, which is really interesting. It says, I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hands. Actually, the idea there is a yoke. (laughs) It's a yoke in his hands. We see this often within the New Testament, where this idea of a yoke is translated in other ways so that we'll understand it better which I think is helpful most of the time, but when we're trying to track themes, it's not very helpful if the idea of yoke is being communicated and we're not translating it that way. 
Well, where else does that happen? It comes up again when Jesus is talking about divorce in Matthew chapter 19. We also see this in Mark chapter 10. If you remember, Jesus is asked if it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all. So Jesus answers this way, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall serve his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? And then in verse 6 it says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And then the very familiar phrase, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. This idea of being joined together, that's the word for yoke. Therefore, what God has yoked together, let no man separate. This idea of marriage is given in terms of being yoked together. That is how the two become one flesh. We we like to think of the sexual act and the physicality of becoming one flesh. That's not at all what the Bible is talking about. The Bible talking about one flesh is being yoked together within a covenant and how Our covenants of marriage in the physical world are symbols of a covenant yoking that we have with the God of the universe. And that's why the symbol of marriage is so important. That's why we have lots of discussions about it. And as new interpretations about marriage come up, that's why we have these debates is because the Bible sets marriage up as a sacred yoking together where we become one with that other thing that we are yoked with. And if we can remember that premise, then becoming a believer in Christ has a slightly different connotation to it because that's also spoken of in terms of a marriage, a yoking together. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Come under my covenant and be yoked together with me. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. That word for bound is yoke. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with other gods? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? So you can see this yoke idea has left the barnyard It's taken on this meaning of slavery and servitude. But then in Jesus' offer, he repurposes the idea of someone coming under his yoke. And the biblical authors attach it to the idea of being bound together with someone in a marriage covenant, being yoked. So there are lots of nuances in the biblical text about what a yoke is. So when Jesus brings his offer— Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Then he says, take my yoke upon you. Let's become one in our purpose. Let's not be on opposite sides trying to accomplish different things. And unfortunately, in many of our modern-day settings, when we read Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, this offer of rest that Jesus gives us. We often just ignore the idea that that is attached to this idea of a yoke in the biblical context. And a yoke, remember, is not just doing nothing. That's how we kind of say, well, Jesus wants us to come and get rest. 
And so his yoke is easy and light. That means we're not doing anything. In other words, it's time in a hammock where we just get to hang out with Jesus because we believe in him. But that's not at all what the picture describes. Jesus is inviting us to attach ourselves to his workload. And the reason that it's easy and light is because we're not fighting against him. We've joined forces, and we're being called to use our gifts and talents in ways that maybe we wouldn't choose on our own. And I think that's the key. When Jesus offers rest and brings the picture of a yoke into that offer, he's inviting us to work. And I think we've terribly misrepresented that in our modern church culture. So with that on board, in the next episode, we're going to go back to the Old Testament. We're going to camp out in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. Those are the places where the Ten Commandments are listed. And remember, it's the fourth commandment that we in modernity like to think that the concept of rest is really found there in the fourth commandment. And so we're going to take a closer look at that and the idea of remembering the Sabbath day. And what we will find is going to be terribly surprising to many. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Rethinking Scripture podcast.